Welcome to Tom SciCast, and I'm your host, Dr. Tom Kennedy. Today, I'm going to talk about photosynthesis. I know, not everybody gets excited about photosynthesis, but I do. And I get to teach it this week in my class for plant and animal form and function. So this is going to be a moderately in-depth look at the nuts and bolts of how photosynthesis works. Don't worry, I'll start with the big picture first, and then slowly keep filling in all the details. Now, in general, the overall guide for how we're going to do this today is, it's going to be in three parts, three broadly speaking parts. The first is going to be on the nature of light. The second part is going to focus on the light reaction. How do you convert the energy and light into chemical energy? And then third, I'm going to focus on the Calvin cycle, or the Calvin-Benson cycle, also known as the light-independent reaction. And this is where carbon dioxide gets fixed into organic molecules. Now, if you're not familiar with a chloroplast, it might be a good idea to familiarize yourself with the chloroplast, because I'm going to focus on how photosynthesis is done in plants. We also know this as oxygenic photosynthesis because it releases oxygen. I'm not going to get into the other forms of photosynthesis. I know, isn't that pretty wild? There's actually photosynthesis out there that doesn't use water, nor does it release oxygen. But we're not going to get into the purple sulfur bacteria today. But let's focus on oxygenic photosynthesis in plants. And the first thing we need to know about is light. I know the light we get from the sun, right? Ultimately, well, for almost all the organisms on this planet, we get our energy from the sun, either directly if you're a plant or indirectly if you're eating a plant or eating something that eats a plant. So our energy comes from the sun, specifically from a process called nuclear fusion. In the center of our sun, it's really hot, lots of pressure, lots of kinetic energy. So much kinetic energy that hydrogen is being fused to form helium. Now, we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of nucleosynthesis inside of our star, but this process of nuclear fusion releases energy, and it releases it that we see as light. You can also feel it as heat. That's the infrared light hitting your skin, warming you up. And it also releases ultraviolet light that we can't see, but that can burn your skin. So that light reaches the earth and a lot of it. To put this into perspective, the earth gets between 150 to a little over 300, maybe 340 watts over every square meter of the planet in a day. That's a lot. Now, of course, there's seasonal variations. In the wintertime, you get less. And in the summertime, you're going to get more. And regions near the equator are going to have more consistent amount of energy coming in throughout the year. You just don't have the seasonal variation. That's a lot of energy. So plants can harness this energy. They can convert the energy in sunlight into kinetic energy. If you're not familiar with light, Light is part of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. And in fact, what we can see is visible light. 
from red and orange and yellow to green and blue and violet. That is one tiny part of the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Now, light, part of this electromagnetic spectrum, is made up of tiny particles that move in waves. And those tiny particles are called photons. And the shorter the wavelength, the more energy the light has. So interestingly, light has a wave-particle duality. It's made up of particles that move in waves. The light that we see has a very tiny wavelength. It's measured in nanometers. So red light is around 700 nanometers, whereas violet light is shorter. It's around 400 nanometers. We can't see much beyond 400, 380 nanometers because that would become ultraviolet light, and that light has more energy. And in fact, ultraviolet light has enough energy to not only make vitamin D in our skin, it can also break chemical bonds. You get where I'm going with this. If it can break chemical bonds, it can cause damage in your skin, including damage to your DNA, and can lead to skin cancer in some people. On the other end of the spectrum, if wavelengths of light is longer than 700, getting into 750, 800 nanometers, then that drops off into the infrared. We can't see infrared, but you can feel it as heat. Longer wavelengths than infrared would be microwave, and even longer wavelengths would be radio waves. And then if we go shorter than ultraviolet, we get into x-rays, you know, that you get at the doctor's office. And the most energetic light waves in the universe are gamma rays and they pack a real punch. But the important take-home message about light waves, the electromagnetic radiation, it's energy. These things have kinetic energy. So in order to convert that kinetic energy into chemical energy, you need to be able to absorb those wavelengths of light. And that's where our pigments come in. You've probably heard of chlorophyll and carotenoids. Chlorophylls make plants green, carotenoids, they make plants orange, and they absorb photons of particular wavelengths. And in fact, the light you see reflected, that's what they're not absorbing. So green plants, they don't use green light. They're reflecting it back, but they are absorbing reds, yellows, blues, and violets. So this chlorophyll, the one that we're really familiar with, there's actually different forms of it. Chlorophyll A, chlorophyll B. Did you know there's a chlorophyll F? Chlorophyll F can actually absorb infrared light and do photosynthesis. I know, that's amazing. And in fact, some people have thought, have speculated, that photosynthesis may not have gotten started in the presence of light. You know, the part of the ocean where you get light. It may have started in the depths of the ocean near thermal vents because they would be releasing infrared and the bacteria living around there may have actually evolved photosynthesis there. And then from there, from the depths of the ocean, photosynthesis evolved to use more energetic forms of light, aka visible light. And as a result, it would be much more efficient at fixing carbon dioxide. But getting back to chlorophyll, this green pigment is pretty wild looking. It's made up of a long hydrophobic tail. And that tail is an isoprenoid tail for those of you into biochemistry. And it's really good at anchoring the molecule into a membrane. 
Next, the head part of it that actually captures the sunlight, it's made up of a bunch of rings, of carbon rings. And at the center of that ring is a magnesium atom. This is important because when the photons of light strike this magnesium atom, it can become excited and it can kick an electron up in energy. And here's why plants are green. Because if you ask me, and if I just thought about this, I would, I would wonder why plants are green and why they're not red or orange. Why are you reflecting green light that has more energy than red light? And the answer lies in the realm of quantum mechanics and the bizarre world of atoms. When we start understanding how atoms work, you know that at the center is the nucleus, protons and neutrons. And then outside the nucleus are the electrons in various orbitals. Now, these electrons, depending on the orbital, has different energy states. Okay, but those energy states are discrete. You can either be at the ground state, zero. You can be at energy state one or two. You cannot be in between. This is why green light gets reflected. Blue light and red light have enough energy to elevate an electron to a discrete energy state. So for example, red light can elevate it from zero to one. For example, I mean, this is pretty simple here. And then blue light with its more energy and shorter wavelength can elevate it up another energy state. So it's got enough energy to put it in one of these discrete energy states. Green light, on the other hand, while it's got more energy than red light, when it elevates an electron, it does not elevate it to a discrete energy state. Therefore, the chlorophyll can't use it. Plants can't use green light. So they have evolved to reflect green light and absorb red and blues. This is an important point. Because the electron, this excited electron that's absorbed this energy, has to be in one of these elevated energy states. And when it is, then it can be transferred ultimately to a reaction center without transferring the charge. So the chlorophyll, I mean, it is really efficient at absorbing all this light energy. About 98% of it is used in photosynthesis. Only 2% is lost, right? Only 2% of the energy absorbed by a chlorophyll molecule is lost as fluorescence or heat. You're familiar with fluorescence. Just think glow-in-the-dark stickers. You turn your light on, you turn your light off, the stickers glow in the dark for a little bit, but over time they fade. Well, what happens is when you turn your light on, the electrons get elevated in energy level. Turn your light off, there's no more light to keep them in that higher energy state. So the electrons, they fall back down in energy and then they release a photon of light that you can see in the dark. So let's make sure we're all on the same page here. We've got these chlorophyll molecules that are absorbing sunlight. Now these chlorophyll molecules they come together to form what's called an antenna complex. And these antenna complexes are made of about 200 to 300 of these chlorophyll molecules. Now on a plant, as you probably know, photosynthesis takes place inside the chloroplast. Now briefly, you know, the chloroplast, it's a plastid, it's a cellular organelle. It's got an outer membrane, it's got an inner membrane. I'm not gonna worry too much about that. 
Now located inside the chloroplast, inside the inner membrane, is another membrane-bound structure called the thylakoid. Thylakoids are like a flattened disc. So there's a space inside the thylakoid. It's called the lumen of the thylakoid. Then you can stack all of these thylakoids together in something called a granum. Okay, thylakoids, they have a membrane. It's called the thylakoid membrane. Now remember, chlorophyll has a long isoprenoid tail, helps you embed itself into a membrane, right? Those chlorophyll pigments, they come together to form an antenna complex. Antenna complex. Sounds like you're doing something like absorbing light. The antenna complex, as you can imagine, is found on the thylakoid membrane. This means that it's on the thylakoid membrane inside of a chloroplast. That is where we're going to capture sunlight and transform it into chemical energy. One way to think about an antenna complex is imagine a giant satellite dish. And it's at the center of the satellite dish where the radio waves are concentrated. Well, guess what? At the center of our antenna complex is the reaction center. So here's what happens. Light is coming down, raining down on the, on the chlorophyll molecules. At the center of the chlorophyll molecules, the electron from magnesium is being elevated in energy. And when it drops back down in energy, it transfers the energy to the next chlorophyll molecule. It's called inductive resonance. And then that electron will go up in energy, back down, but that energy is transferred and it's concentrated in a reaction center. And it's in that reaction center that an electron gets elevated much higher in energy. So you're concentrating all the energy from the antenna complex into this reaction center into a single electron that's going to go way high in energy way high. That's a really good quantitative term in science, isn't it? And two more things here. In the antenna complex, it's not just chlorophyll. There are also beta carotenes and other carotenoids also helping to absorb light. And inductive resonance. Think about a wave. You know, I used to go to college football games and a wave would go around the stadium and you would see people stand up and sit back down. The wave traveled around the stadium without a single person changing place. They didn't move. They just went up and down. But the energy of their excitement was transferred to the person next to them. Now, there's one thing that I want to mention here. Whenever you go to the Wikipedia, listen to my podcast, read a textbook, have photosynthesis explained on some other website, it often sounds like we know how it works. Like we got this down especially when you start talking about inductive resonance and other processes like that. But not so fast. It turns out that this energy transfer is way more complicated and interesting than what's often presented in our basic biology textbooks, even some of the advanced ones. Now think about this. I just told you earlier that these chlorophyll molecules, these antenna complexes are like 98% efficient. This fact alone probably makes them the most efficient energy transfer in the world, including biological and especially man-made objects. I mean, this is crazy, 
And it turns out that the movement of electrons and energy through an antenna complex may actually be governed by quantum effects. I mean, the world at the atomic level is bizarre. It's really bizarre. They don't act the same as everyday objects. That includes photons, protons, electrons. They're really different from us. I mean, I've already talked about the wave-particle duality of light. They also have superposition. Yeah, the ability to be in multiple states at once, like a wave and a particle. And they can also be in many places at once, which is known as quantum coherence. And it turns out that photons might have quantum coherence. The implication here is that when a photon hits the antenna complex, it goes everywhere at once. It's everywhere, right? Isn't that wild? It's coherence. And then through a process called decoherence, it assumes a single state or position. So the way that this would help with our 98% efficiency is that the photon hits the antenna complex is everywhere all at once, and then through decoherence, assumes a single state or position, acting like a particle once again, and the energy gets efficiently transferred to the reaction center, much more efficiently than a random walk through inductive resonance. We'll see. We'll see. We haven't figured out if quantum coherence is important for photosynthesis, but there's good evidence that it likely is. And in fact, in the last decade, there's been a field of quantum biology that is starting to take off looking at the quantum effects on biology. See, it was thought for a long time that biology is too big for quantum effects. But it turns out it may not be. But I do want to point out here that not everyone agrees that quantum effects like coherence is important in photosynthesis, returning much more to a classical explanation that we learn in our textbooks. So we'll see. We'll see where this goes in the next decade or so. But to recap, the antenna complexes are absorbing light energy and they're concentrating it in the reaction center where it can elevate an electron where it's picked up by an electron acceptors. So as you may have suspected, we have now entered the light reaction. We have begun our journey of capturing light energy and we have our elevated electron. So what is the importance of this elevated electron or excited electron or electron with a lot of energy? This is our journey of the light reaction and the beginnings of photosynthesis. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, in photosynthesis, you know that we're going to take carbon dioxide, water, and the energy in sunlight, and we're going to fix that carbon dioxide into an organic molecule. We're going to reduce it. This is a redox reaction. And because we're taking simple molecules, carbon dioxide and water, and making a more complex molecule out of this that requires energy, it's got more potential energy stored in it, this is also an endergonic reaction. We've already got the source of energy, it's sunlight. And wait a second, we're going to reduce carbon dioxide into an organic form that requires an electron? Well, we just elevated an electron. So now we've got several questions. Where did that electron come from? We know it's elevated in energy, but how does it get fixed to carbon dioxide? How do we add that electron to carbon dioxide to make an organic molecule? What's the journey of this electron? And the other story we need to follow is the energy. 
Because if this is an endergonic reaction, it requires energy. So how do we take this elevated electron from a reaction center and use its energy to carry out an endergonic reaction? We know the electron is going to get to the carbon at some point. We're going to follow that story, and we're going to follow the story of the energy. How do we make chemical energy? Okay, let's get started. Just a review of the big picture. So we're all on the same page here. We've already begun the light reaction. And then when we fix carbon dioxide, that's the Calvin cycle or the Calvin Benson cycle or the synthesis part or the light independent reaction. And these two processes are linked by the flow of electrons. So where did those electrons come from? Let's start with the light reaction. I'm gonna give you an overview and then we're gonna get into more detail. And then when I'm done with the light reaction, I'll get to the Calvin cycle. Big picture, light reaction, the photo part, we've already seen it. It transforms the energy in sunlight into potential energy. That potential energy is then used for the Calvin cycle. Okay, so what is this light reaction gonna make? Specifically, it's gonna make ATP through a process called photophosphorylation. That's gonna be one source of energy for the Calvin cycle. And second, it's also gonna reduce our electron carrier NADP to NADPH. This is what's gonna happen in the light reaction. So that's important, right? We've got our source of energy, ATP. We also have the electron carrier. So we know that the electron is gonna go from this reaction center and at the end of the light reaction, it's going to be on NADPH, an electron carrier. Okay, where does that electron come from? I keep saying this. It comes from water. Yeah, I know, that's amazing. So what happens is that water is split, and it's split into hydrogen and oxygen. Think about this. Photosynthesis is oxidizing oxygen. Oxygen is the second most electronegative element in the universe. It loves its electrons. And the way that oxygen gets oxidized is it requires energy. We know that from our sunlight and special enzymes. Now, once you split water into hydrogen and oxygen, the oxygen just forms molecular oxygen, O2, and diffuses out of the plant. That's the source of the oxygen we get today. Now the hydrogens, like the electrons, they also have a journey. And we know that if we're gonna fix carbon dioxide into an organic molecule, a redox reaction, not only are we adding electrons to it, we are adding hydrogens to it as well. So those hydrogens, some of them are going to end up on our organic molecule, ultimately sugar. And if you remember, our electron carrier, NADPH, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide phosphate or something like that, NADP gets reduced to NADPH. Yeah, it's carrying an electron and a hydrogen. However, the hydrogens often don't go straight from being split off of water. We're stripping the hydrogens and electrons from oxygen. They don't go straight to NADPH. They have a journey too. They have another role to play. Okay, so the electrons, we split water, because we split them from water, they lack energy. They are not like the high energy electrons in organic molecules. 
So these electrons, they get elevated in energy. But before they end up on NADPH, here's what happens. They get carried through an electron transport chain. And I know you've seen this before. I know you've heard of electron transport chains, right? Think cellular respiration. What do those electron transport chains do? You're right. They use the energy of the electrons to pump protons across a membrane to create a proton gradient, aka an electrochemical gradient. What this means is that the energy in sunlight is being temporarily stored as a proton gradient as protons are pumped across the thylakoid membrane into the thylakoid space. Now it's starting to make sense why the inside of a chloroplast has an additional membrane-bound structure called the thylakoid. Because it's on the thylakoid membrane that you have all the chlorophyll bound to it, forming the antenna complexes, elevating energy, right? You get the idea. And then ultimately, those electrons from water get elevated in energy. They go down an electron transport chain. They go through a cytochrome complex. They're a proton pump. They pump protons into the thylakoid space. Well, if I'm pumping protons into a thylakoid space and we have to make ATP, well, guess what? Those protons flow through an ATP synthase using their proton motive force to make ATP. Proton motive force is basically protons pushing their way through the ATP synthase. You've also heard of this as chemiosmosis. So think about this. We've now taken light energy. We've used it to strip the electrons and hydrogens away from oxygen. We've elevated those electrons and energy. We've sent those electrons down an electron transport chain, which creates our proton gradient. Then we use that gradient, that stored energy, to make ATP. Now the energy in sunlight, that kinetic energy, has been transformed to chemical energy stored in ATP. Now, once the energy of those electrons is used in the proton pump, they once again are without energy. They lack energy. So they get elevated again in energy through another large complex. And then those electrons are picked up by yet another electron carrier that shuttles those electrons to a very, very important protein called the ferredoxin, which is an electron carrier. And ultimately, the fate of those electrons, you know where they're going. They're going to be used to fix carbon dioxide into an organic molecule. So this is our big picture. The electrons come from water. The electrons get elevated in energy. They go through an electron transport chain. The energy of those electrons is then used to create a proton gradient. That proton gradient is then used to make ATP using ATP synthase. The electrons, once they leave the proton pump, they're elevated again in energy where they are picked up by ferredoxin and shuttled to the Calvin cycle. Now, I'm gonna dive further in. Let's take a closer look at the light reaction. Because those antenna complexes that have the two to 300 chlorophyll molecules, they're just not randomly scattered throughout the thylakoid membrane. 
Those antenna complexes are found in what we call a photosystem. And photosynthesis technically begins with photosystem 2. Now, this is a large molecular complex embedded in the thylakoid membrane. It's made of like 20 subunits, 99 cofactors, various pigments, you know, carotenoids, chlorophylls, electron acceptors, lipids, the antenna complexes, and the reaction center. Now, the reaction center in photosystem 2 is labeled the P680. What that means is it's absorbing a lot of its light at about 680 nanometers, and it's involved also with the oxidation of water. Those are some of those various enzymes that are located in this complex. So we already know that water serves as a source of electrons in photosynthesis. This tells you it takes a lot of energy to pull those electrons away, and those electrons need to be elevated energy to do work. So photosystem two, this is where you split the water molecule. The oxidation of water is going to produce about four electrons that will immediately be used in the electron transport to generate our proton gradient. Now the four hydrogen ions, the four protons, this will be used to make ATP by chemiosmosis. Now, if you're wondering why four electrons, four hydrogens, this of course is for every two water molecules, H2O, it releases O2. Gotta keep your equations balanced here. Okay, four electrons, four hydrogens, and because the electrons from water have little energy, PS2, Photosystem 2, not PlayStation 2, it's gonna elevate them in energy where they are picked up by an electron carrier. So we're following the electrons. We pull the electrons away from the water, they get elevated energy, and the first of the electron carriers is called pheophyton. Now, pheophyton then passes the electrons onto another electron carrier called plastoquinone. You may have heard of ubiquinone because that is found in the electron transport chain of the mitochondria. And then plastoquinone, or PQ, then takes the electrons to the cytochrome complex. And that is specifically called the cytochrome B6F complex. Another large molecular complex. It is part of the electron transport linking photosystem 2 to photosystem 1. It uses the energy of those electrons to pump protons into the thylakoid space. That's how we're generating our electrochemical gradient. We're storing energy. Remember, we're converting you know, kinetic energy and sunlight. Now we've got it stored as an electrochemical gradient, or also known as a proton gradient. It pumps four protons for every two electrons. And it's this gradient that creates the proton motive force, allowing our ATP synthase to make ATP by chemiosmosis. Now, of course, as the electrons are flowing through this electron transport chain, going through the cytochrome complex, is being more and more oxidized, meaning it's giving up its energy. And in this case, the energy is being used to do work. So we need a more electronegative electron carrier to pull the electron off the cytochrome complex. And in this case, it's called plastocyanin. It's another electron carrier, and it's gonna shuttle the electrons from the cytochrome complex to another photosystem called photosystem one. Wait, I know, I know. 
I started out with Photo System 2 and then went to Photo System 1. The reason why is because Photo System 1 was discovered before Photo System 2. But don't forget that photosynthesis begins with Photo System 2. Now, once the plastocyanin shuttles the electrons from the cytochrome complex to photosystem one. Photosystem one can once again elevate those electrons in energy. And PS1 is also called the P700 reaction center because it absorbs wavelengths around 700 nanometers. And just remember, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter, it's quite tiny. Photosystem 1 is going to capture sunlight much in the same way that Photosystem 2 does. And it's also going to elevate the electron up in energy. The difference here is the electron in Photosystem 1 is coming off the electron transport chain. It's coming off the cytochrome complex, not from water. Then, importantly, the electron is removed from the Photosystem 1 and gets to ferredoxin. Now, ferredoxin is, you know, we, we see these names of these molecules and we just kind of plasticyanin, ubiquinone, we don't think much of them, NADPH. But ferredoxin is an iron sulfur protein. And it also serves as an electron carrier, but it's used in a lot of different metabolic reactions, like photosynthesis, like fermentation, aerobic nitrogen fixation, and some really good research by Nick Lane and company are showing that ferredoxins may have been important in the origin of life. So here's a molecule, this iron sulfur molecule, protein. It just keeps getting used over and over and over again as a very important electron carrier. And then photosynthesis is going to carry it to another electron carrier called NADP and is going to reduce it to NADPH. Now, NADP and ADPH, they're very similar molecules. If you've studied cellular respiration, you've probably heard of NAD getting reduced to NADH. In this case, its cousin, NADP, is getting reduced to NADPH. One of the biggest differences between the two is that NAD plus to NADH is often used in catabolic reactions, things that are breaking stuff down. Whereas NADPH is often used in anabolic reactions, building stuff up, like in photosynthesis. And then NADPH, it will carry the electron and a hydrogen to the Calvin cycle where the carbon and carbon dioxide gets reduced. So as you can see, in the light reaction, we've taken the energy in sunlight and we've transformed it into chemical energy, ATP, and we've also gotten a source of electrons that's being carried to the Calvin cycle by NADPH. And it's the flow of electrons from the light reaction that connects it to the Calvin cycle. So what happens next? You know, we, we know this Calvin cycle's got to be an endergonic reaction. It takes energy. And that makes sense. I mean, we're taking carbon dioxide and we're fixing it to an organic molecule, and we're going to get, ultimately, some type of sugar out of that. And the sugar has way more stored energy than carbon dioxide does. So the energy to power it, as we just learned, is ATP. And the electrons that we started way back in photosystem 2 came from the splitting of water. And those electrons are being carried by our electron carrier. 
So here's what happens in the stroma of a chloroplast. Now, this is that area between the inner membrane and the thylakoid. This is where the Calvin cycle occurs. And it's a cycle because it's a series of chemical reactions that basically goes round and round and round. And it starts with a molecule, actually a protein enzyme called, wait for it, ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase oxidase. Yeah, that's a mouthful. Most people just call it Rubisco. Not to be confused with Nabisco, but it's Rubisco, which is, you know, short for ribulose bisphosphate carboxylase oxidase. This is an enzyme, and it tells you what it's going to do. It ends with ASE, ACE. That tells you it's an enzyme. And what this enzyme is going to do, well, it's a carboxylase, so it's going to add carboxyl to ribulose bisphosphate. Now, ribulose bisphosphate, you probably have heard of ribulose, or at least a ribose sugar. You remember DNA and RNA? Yeah deoxyribonucleic acid, or just ribonucleic acid, that's a five-carbon sugar. Now, the ribulose bisphosphate part of it, bi means two, and with the S, the bisphosphate tells you that this five-carbon sugar has a phosphate group attached to either side of it. So this molecule, RUBP, ribulose bisphosphate, has a ton of potential energy. And because it has a lot of potential energy, Guess what? The bonds are easier to break. So our enzyme, Rubisco, the carboxylase, right, can stick carbon dioxide onto it and form a carboxyl group. Now, very quickly, I'm not going to go into this that much. Rubisco is not only a carboxylase, it's also an oxidase. It can also oxidize by sticking oxygen onto RUBP in a process called photorespiration. I'm not going to get into that here. But whenever Rubisco sticks a carbon dioxide onto RUBP, this is a part of the Calvin cycle known as carbon fixation. So almost immediately, once Rubisco sticks that carbon dioxide onto RUBP, it almost immediately splits into a molecule called 3 phosphoglycerate, and you have two of them. Now, let me back up a little bit. The Calvin cycle is going to fix carbon dioxide. Okay, we're going to fix it into an organic molecule. We're adding electrons to it. And we're adding some energy and some hydrogens. So we're going to go from inorganic carbon to organic carbon. And the output of the Calvin cycle actually is a three-carbon compound called glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate or G3P, okay? So three carbons are going to come out. So to keep our carbons balanced, most of the time when we explain the Calvin cycle, it's with three carbons coming in, three carbon dioxides. So you've got Rubisco is going to attach, you know, carbon dioxide to RUBP, but we're going to do this three at a time. So we're going to start with three ribulose bisphosphates, three RUBPs, three carbon dioxides, and when it, you know, you add those carbon dioxides to it, you get, you know, the 3 phosphoglycerate also known as 3PGA, but I'm going to have six of them. Let's add up our carbons. Three carbons coming in from 
carbon dioxide. We've got three ribulous bisphosphates. So that's three times five, which is 15 plus three. We have 18 carbons. So if I've got a three carbon compound called 3PGA times six, I have 18. So our carbons are balanced here. And one more thing that's important, that 3-phosphoglycerate, that is a three-carbon compound. So the name of this pathway, if you ever start getting into the different types of photosynthetic pathways, this is a C3 pathway because upon carbon fixation, you form a three-carbon compound. And in this case, it's the 3-phosphoglycerate. So you get three carbons with a phosphate group attached to it. Now we're going to use some ATP and our NADPH is going to come in here. So we're going to use energy and there's our NADPH. That's our electron carrier. It's going to reduce the 3-phosphoglycerate through a series of chemical reactions till we get to glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. So we're adding electrons. We're adding hydrogen. And this is the reduction phase. And then once we get our glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate coming out of this. We're going to get one of those with three carbons. It's going to exit the Calvin cycle. And that's going to be used to go off and make glucose, fructose, and other carbohydrates and other metabolites. Then the third phase of the Calvin cycle is a regeneration. So we've got to take our five three-carbon compound, which is five of our G3Ps, five of our glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, we're going to use some ATP, go through a series of chemical reactions, and we're going to regenerate ribulose bisphosphate. Now, remember, we've got five of our three carbon compounds, so that's 15 carbons, and we're going to make three RUBPs that each have five carbons, so that's 15 carbons, and we regenerate that using energy. So, in both the reduction and the regeneration phase, we're using ATP, hence this is an endergonic reaction. And basically, in a nutshell, this is photosynthesis. Over the course of all of these reactions, right, we've taken the energy in sunlight, we've transformed that energy into potential energy, and by the end of the Calvin cycle, it's stored as a carbohydrate. And we've taken carbon dioxide, which is basically an inorganic form of carbon, and we've reduced it, so it's gained electrons, gained some hydrogens, and those electrons and hydrogens came from the very beginning of photosynthesis, way back in the photosystem too, when we split water, and we've used those electrons you know, to help make the ATP through photophosphorylation. Then we've transferred those electrons from the light reaction to the Calvin cycle, their intermediates, the NADPH, and we've used that to reduce our molecules so that they go from an inorganic form of carbon, carbon dioxide, to an organic form with the hydrogens. And that's it. That's photosynthesis. And we typically say that the overall chemical reaction is six carbon dioxides plus six waters with an input of energy. And we get glucose, C6H12O6 out of this, and six oxygens. And as you can see, it doesn't occur in one step. It occurs over the light reaction and the Calvin cycle. All right. Well, I hope you learned a little bit about photosynthesis. I hope you liked it, at least a little bit. 
I know you always hear chlorophyll sounds like borophyll. I don't know about you, but I find photosynthesis to be really interesting. And I enjoy teaching it every semester that I can. Okay, until next time, this has been Tom Sycast. <laughs>